Um, So the first Bible reading comes from Genesis chapter 25, from verses 19 to 34. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew, I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I am about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Thanks, Beck, and good evening, church. Nice to see you all. My name is Paul, if I haven't met you. Um, thanks, Ali, for great emceeing tonight and for showing us how messed up and flawed these people are in Genesis. I've loved grappling these, uh, these chapters. Turn back in your Bibles to chapter 25. Uh, we're going to look through chapters 25 to 27 tonight, and it's a, a cracking story of just dysfunctional families, and that resonates with me. Um, let me ask you a question. If you could ask God one question, if you could stand before God and ask him just one question, what would you ask him? Maybe you'd ask about suffering. And God, why is there so much suffering in the world? That, that's a great question to ask. Maybe you'd ask a question about evil. God, why is there so much evil and hurt and hatred? That, that's a question you want answered, isn't it? Maybe your question is about other religions. Now, God, why are there so many religions, and, and could they possibly all be true? Uh, maybe your question is about hell. How can a good God send people to hell? They're all great questions. Uh, here's my one question for God. If I could stand before God and ask him just one question, here's the question that I want answered. God, why do you choose some people and not others? God, why do you choose some people to believe, but not all people? It's, it's a question that bothers me. It's a question that confuses me. It's a question I just don't like. Let me personalize it. God, why am I the only believer in my family? 
God, why, why do my brother and sister not yet believe? Have you not chosen them? And if not, why not? God, why did all my grandparents die as unbelievers? God, why did my father die as an unbeliever? Why didn't you choose them, God? Uh, God, uh, in these, these family of, of Christians, why is it you have these kids who grow up in the Christ, same Christian home and yet only one child believes in Jesus? Why is that? And God, if you choose people as you say you do, then, then why am I doing my job? Why bother? Why do you need people like me to tell people about Jesus? Just, just zap them into your kingdom. I really don't like this doctrine called election. I really don't. I struggle with it. This idea that God chooses people. And yet that is the story of Jacob and Esau. We had it read in Romans chapter 9. God says really bluntly, Jacob, I loved but Esau, I hate it. Don't like that. Or oh, Romans 9, verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, says God. So God says, let me decide who to show mercy to. I can choose that. Let's be honest. It does not sit comfortably. Perhaps you're getting angry saying, God, this doctrine of election is unjust, it's unfair. Or maybe you're just apathetic saying, who really cares? Now, we might not get it, we might not like it, but this doctrine of God's election, it is biblical truth that we must grapple with, that God chooses people. I've said before that when I was at school as a teenager, I was terrible at soccer. Not, not just bad, I was terrible at soccer. And remember those school days where you, they, they line you up on a line, they choose two captains? And those two captains pick their teams. And the problem was there were more people in our class than there were places on the team. And so I kid you not, every single week I was not chosen. And every week I was on a cross-country run. And that hurt. It really, really hurt not being chosen. But I, I kind of got it because I was crap. You know, people were chosen because they were competent and they were skilled and they were gifted. And God choosing people would kind of make sense if God chose us because of our competency and our gifting and our skills and he didn't choose the crap people. But that's not what God, the Bible says. The Bible says God chooses who he chooses. That's what we're grappling with tonight and it's a, it's a difficult sermon. To be honest, Genesis 25 to 27 are totally unedifying and totally immoral chapters of the Bible. You've got envy, jealousy, fighting, scheming, manipulation. It's like a Hollywood movie. Let, let, let's cast the movie, shall we? Who's going to play Rebecca? Rebecca is this totally together, totally composed woman who is manipulative and conniving. Who's going to play her? I reckon this is not a reflection on her character, but I reckon someone like an Angelina Jolie would, would play her really, really well. You've got Isaac, who's this old, rugged charm. He, he's past it, but he thinks he's still got it. So someone like a, a, a Robert De Niro might play him. <laughs> and then you've got Esau, who's this macho, hairy bear, red-headed. Maybe a red-headed Russell Crowe would be good at playing him. And then you've got Jacob, who's this smooth, 
manscaped, metrosexual. <laughs> and I reckon like Tom Holland might be really good at playing him. And you laugh, but, but that is the Bible. It's a story of these messed up, dysfunctional, broken people. And that's why I love it. Because I'm messed up and dysfunctional, and so are you. So open your Bibles, Genesis 25. We're told in verse 1 that Abraham remarries, and he had six more sons. And I think we're supposed to stop at this point and go, wow, God, you did abundantly more than Abraham ever imagined. At verse 7, Abraham lived 175 years. That's a pretty good innings. Down to verse 20, Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. Remember that story from last week? It just so happened that Abraham wanted to find his son a wife, and it just so happened that he met Rebekah, that camel-watering, selfless servant who they fell in love. But you've got to understand between verses 20 and 21 of chapter 25, 20 years have passed. We're told down in verse 26 that Isaac was 60 when she gave birth. So Isaac is now 60, and Rebekah is not young anymore, and they are still childless. And it's like history repeating itself. Because God keeps using childlessness to show that his promises will be fulfilled, not by human effort and not by human will, but by God's hand and God's control and God's timing. But it's still hard, isn't it? Isaac's been told he'd have many kids. Rebecca's been prophesied over that she'll have thousands upon ten thousands. Can you imagine that the pain and the agony and the despair of 20 years of childlessness? And I know some of us can in this room tonight. And my heart breaks. So in verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife. That's always a good thing to do to plead with God. And we're not told how long he pleads with God for, but I imagine every day for 20 years, every day on his knees saying, please God, please God. And the Lord answered verse 21. And she became pregnant and it's double joy because they're twins and they live happily ever after. No. I want to walk us through the story tonight, and there's three battles, and then we'll apply it all at the end of the sermon tonight. So stick with me. You begin with a battle for birth. Because Esau and Jacob, they are fighting in the womb. It's like womb wars. Verse 22, the, the babies jostled each other within her. Literally, that says they smashed each other within her. It's like wrestling in the womb. And Rebecca is crying, Why is this happening, Lord? Now, verse 23 is the key. Two nations are in my womb, and two people from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. That's the key. The older will serve the younger, because God is going to turn things upside down. Now, God often does that, doesn't he? God often does things that the world did not expect him to do. God often turns human logic on its head. Because God chooses the people that we least expect. And so you've got to understand that in this culture, the firstborn was the heir, and the secondborn was the spare. Have you heard that recently? 
The firstborn is the heir. The second is the spare. So, so Esau is the heir, the firstborn. He is the one with all the rights, all the privilege, and all the inheritance. And Jacob, he's just the spare. And God says, no, actually, the, the blessings, the benefits are going to go to the younger, not the older. And the battle in the womb begins, continues rather in the, the uh, delivery suite, because in verse 25, the first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. And so they gave him a, a, an interesting name called Esau. It means hairy. The younger twin, verse 26, well, actually, you see his hand before you see his head, because his hand pokes out first and it's grasping at Esau's heel, almost like he's trying to pull him back inside the womb, saying, me first, me first. And there was a name. The name was called Jacobel. That's a beautiful name. It means God protects. But they don't call him Jacobel. They call him Jacob, which means heel grabber, tripper upper, deceiver, manipulator, or liar. Great names, aren't they? Hairy and liar. And they're just so different. Verse 27, the boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter. So he, Esau is the rugged, rough, hairy kind of guy that you can smell a mile away. But Jacob, verse 27, was content to stay at home with his mum to cook. And, and people would say, oh, Rebecca, are you sure they're twins? They're so different. But it wasn't just nature, it's also nurture. You're told in verse 28 that Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So the parents had favorites, and that never ends well when parents have favorite children. The battle for the birthright is verses 29 to 34. Here's the story that Esau's out in the field. He comes home after a long day, and Jacob's at home cooking. And he says to Jacob, quick, verse 30, let me have some of that red stew. I am famished. Feed me and feed me now. And it's almost like Jacob has been waiting for this moment. He's been so cunning and calculating. He says, this is the moment. Jacob says, first sell me your birthright, verse 31. And you expect Israel to say, oh, don't be ridiculous. Why would I sell you my birthright for a bowl of stew? That is ridiculous. Why would I give it something precious and valuable for a bowl of beans? But he doesn't. Verse 32, Esau says, look, I'm about to die. Slight, slight exaggeration there. But, but what good is a birthright? Actually, it's, it's very good, Esau. It's invaluable. Why would you give it up? Verse 33, swear me first. Grasp that heel. Seize the moment. Deceive him and manipulate him and grab that birthright. Now, now you could read this story and focus focus on Jacob and think, well, what a deceptive, little, conniving, manipulative mummy's boy. But Moses, the author, doesn't do that. He focuses on Esau. Verse 34, so Esau despised his birthright. And friends, that's how Esau is remembered throughout the Bible. The man who flippantly gave away something precious. The man who couldn't care less about his future, his inheritance or eternity, the man who had something of great worth, but just gave it away for temporary pleasure. Does that sound familiar? Anyway, the years pass and Esau gets married at the age of 40 
history repeating itself. But look who he married. Turn to 20, 20, chapter 26, verse 34. Who does Esau marry? When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Berai the Hittite, and also Basemath, daughter of Elon the Hittite. So he doesn't marry from the right family or the right faith. He, he marries Hittite women of, who worship a different god. And he takes two wives, not one. He's a polygamist. And I think he's just rebellious. I think Esau's the kind of guy who is so fed up with his parents' narrow little faith and to say, look, I'll do it my way. And it reminds me so much of those rebellious kids from a Christian home who say, stuff you, mum, stuff you, dad. I'm going to do things my way. And it never ends well. Anyway, you've got the battle for the blessing, chapter 27. It's a famous story. But before we scan this chapter, let me just highlight a couple of things. This blew my mind this week. There were 37 years between chapters 26 and 27. So by the time you get to chapter 27, Isaac is 127. And if you do your maths, that means that Esau and Jacob are 77 years old. You know, know those kids' Bible stories where Jacob and Esau are these teenage hunks? They're 77 years old. They're not spring chickens. And, and everyone in this chapter is totally messed up. Isaac digs his heels in and is determined to bless the older son. Rebecca eavesdrops and is scheming and conniving. Esau is living for himself and his wants. And Jacob is a liar and a deceiver. It's a dysfunctional family, but a very functional God. Let me just walk you through the story very briefly. Uh, Isaac takes Esau, and Isaac is determined that Esau should get the blessing because he's the older son and the favorite son. And so he organizes this private blessing ceremony. Now, I'm sure that Isaac heard the prophecy from God, but he didn't like it. He twisted God's word. He ignored God's word. And again, church, when you know God's word, but you actively do something different, always ends badly. Always ends badly. The next scene is Rebecca and Jacob, because Rebecca eavesdrop on her husband giving the blessing to Esau. And she says, okay, here's the plan, Jacob. Uh, you go and get two goats. I'll cook a stew, and I'll get some hairy garments to make you look and feel like your brother, and then you can steal the blessing. Sounds like a great plan. It's a stupid plan. Verse 11, Jacob says to Rebekah, his mother, but my brother Esau is a hairy man while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him. <laughs> Isn't that ridiculous? You are tricking him. <laughs> you are tricking him, and I will bring that curse on myself rather than the blessing. But Rebecca's got that sorted. So in verse 15, she gets some of Esau's clothes with that outdoor locker room body odor, not your linen shirt wearing Jacob, the odor toilet man. No, no. Verse 16, she gets some goat skin. She covers the hair. And, and just so you understand what kind of hairy man Esau is, she puts hairs on the back of the neck. So he's the kind of guy where the back hair meets the neck hair, and it's just one carpet of hair down his back. I told you it's funny. And then Jacob goes in and he meets Isaac and he walks in and he says, 
Hey, Dad. Sorry. Hey, Dad, I'm Esau. And he says, come closely. Let me touch you. He goes, oh, you sound like Jacob, but, oh, you, you feel like Esau, and you smell like Esau. And so Jacob gets the blessing from Isaac, and then Esau comes storming in and says, hey, Dad, I've got that game. And, and, and Isaac says, who are you? I've just given the blessing to somebody else. Verse 33, Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came and I blessed him and he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud, bitter, and the word there is baby cry. Crying like a baby, bless me, bless me, bless me, dad. But it's too late. Because that deceptive, manipulative, conniving Jacob has stolen the blessing. And it ends really badly with Esau wanting to kill his brother. And then Rebekah came with another plan to send Jacob off for a holiday to Laban where he stays for 21 years. And it ends badly for everybody. It's just the story of messed up, dysfunctional people. And it ends in a horrific way in chapter 28, verse 9, where Esau thinks he can get back in with mum and dad by marrying well. So who does he choose? Verse 9, he went to Ishmael. Remember him? And married Mahalath. So you've got Esau, the eldest son of Isaac, who was not chosen by God, marrying a daughter of Ishmael, the eldest son of Abraham, who was also not chosen by God. And, and the prophecy comes true because Esau does give birth to a nation. They're called the Edomites. Have you heard of them? And the Edomites in the Bible hated God's people. And who's the most famous Edomite of all? A man in the New Testament who's called Herod. Ever heard of him? Herod the Edomite who wanted to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the story. This crazy story of deceit, betrayal, fighting factions and jealousy, and no one looks good. So what do you do with it? I've got three wonderful truths very quickly. The truth of God's election. God's election. That God chooses whoever he wants to choose. And God chooses not because these people are amazing or lovable. There's nothing lovable about anybody in this story. There's nothing amazing about anybody in this story. God just chooses who he wants to choose. Romans 9, verse 11, Yet before the twins were born, before Esau and Jacob were born, and had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she, Rebecca, was told the older will serve the younger. So you've got to understand that God chose Jacob not because of his good works, not because of his morality, not because of his kindness, not because of his religion. He was just chosen in the womb. He was chosen before he had a, a single chance to do anything good or anything bad. He was just chosen by God. I don't like that, but it's truth. And that means, my friends, if you're a Christian here tonight, you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. You believe in Jesus. You did not choose Jesus. Jesus chose you. And God chose you, not because you were lovable, not because you were amazing, 
not because of any incredible works that you had done or would do. God didn't see you in the room and say, hey, I think they would be great for the Bridge Church. I think they'd be fantastic for ministry. I think they'd be these upright uh, evangelistic people, so I'm going to choose them. That's not what God chose you. God just chose you. I don't know why. I don't know why he chose me either. But that is the doctrine of election. You know, reading an Alpha course at the moment, I love Alpha. And every single Tuesday night, people walk through that doors who are not yet believers. And what I love about it is that they're also different. They're different backgrounds, different ages, different ethnicities, different socioeconomic status. And we've got this, these people with this list of names, and I have not got a clue which of those people are going to put their faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, I know that we like to judge people. We're very good at that. I know that we like to look at people on the externals and think, oh, God should choose them. They're, they're a nice person. Oh, God should choose them because, oh, they're, they're attractive. Oh, God should choose them because they're so gifted, they're so confident. That's not how God works. Now, 1 Corinthians 1 says that God chooses the foolish to shame the wise. God chooses the weak to shame the strong. God, God chooses, God often chooses, you know, people who we just don't give a second look to. God often chooses the people that we least expect to believe in Jesus. And that is so humbling, isn't it? You know, let's be honest. We live in this, this, this lower North Shore bubble where we are so good at judging from the exterior. We're so good at it. And we look at people and we're so image conscious and we say, oh, wow, they're a great person. Oh, wow, look up to them. Oh, wow, adore them. Oh, maybe God should choose them. Why would he? God often chooses the, the lowly and the destitute. And the, who, who did Jesus choose? Who did Jesus hang out with? It wasn't the Mossman set. It was the, it was the prostitutes. It was the destitute. It was the poor people. All these people that we are so good at ignoring and thinking God couldn't possibly love them. They're exactly the type of people that God chooses. Have you realized that God's church around the globe is exploding? And it's exploding amongst people who have nothing. They have nothing, but they've got Jesus. So please don't write people off. Oh, why bother then? Why bother because we do not know who's been chosen, do we? Spurgeon says this. If God would have painted a yellow stripe on the backs of the elect, I would go around lifting shirts. But since he hasn't and didn't, I must preach whosoever will and whensoever will, and I know that he will choose who he chooses. It is so liberating. It is so liberating. We, we're just called to pray and to preach and to pray and to preach because you don't know who's chosen. Uh, last week I had the honor and privilege of doing a funeral for Bruce Robertson. And if you know this story, then Veronica Robertson has been a believer, what, 40, 50 years? And Bruce refused to believe. And she prayed and she prayed and she prayed for 10 years, for 20 years, for 30 years, for 40 years. And then about five years ago, Bruce gave his life to Christ. 
So they don't give up on people. You, you don't have a clue whether they're the chosen ones. You don't have a clue when and when, and when God's going to save them. You're just called to preach and to pray, to preach and to pray. That is the doctrine of God's election. You might say, oh, Paul, that's unfair, that's unjust. That's the argument from Romans 9. God, that's not fair. God, that's not just. And Paul says to us tonight, do you really want to talk about justice? Do you really want me to be just? Because if you want me to be just, then none of us deserve anything from God, do we? Remember the story of the, um, of the lady who was getting her portrait painted uh, but she wasn't a particularly attractive lady. And, and she's sitting there having a portrait painted, and she says to the artist, uh, Sir, make sure you do me justice. And the rather rude man says, uh, Madam, it's not justice you need, but mercy. <laughs> and it's, it's like, oh, that's a bit rude. But, but actually, if you're sitting here tonight saying, God, that's not just, God's saying to you, do you really want me to just? Do you really want me to judge you according to who you are and what you've done? You don't want justice. You want mercy, don't you? That's the truth of God's election. God is God and you are not. He is the potter. You're the clay. God has every right to choose who he chooses. But we just don't know who he will choose and when he'll choose them. God's warning. God's warning. That's the second Application because Esau is held up in Scripture as a warning. He's held up for his lack of human responsibility. He's held up as the older brother who stupidly throws away his inheritance. He's held up as the older brother who refuses to go to the banquet, the older brother who didn't care much about spiritual things, the older brother who is governed by his flesh, what he can see, feel and touch and he despised spiritual things and he gave it away for temporary pleasure and satisfaction that's Esau Hebrews 12 on the screen see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many see that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he'd done. Esau is a warning. He's a warning to, I think, to kids who grow up in a Christian home. Uh, kids who go in a Christian home and, you know, from the day of birth they're taught about Jesus and they go to church every single Sunday and kids' church and youth group. And then one day they say, stuff you, not interested in God. And they wander and they reject their heritage. They reject their inheritance. They, they reject everything they know to be true about God and they reject it. Why? Why? Because often for temporary pleasures like sex... Money, popularity, and a bit of fun. If that is you and you've grown up in a Christian home and you're tempted to, to throw it all away for temporary pleasures, please be warned, because it did not end well for Esau. You know, I've been a pastor here for almost 20 years. And there are so many people who have sat where you have sat. You're sitting here tonight. 
and I bump into them in the street and I say, oh, which church are you going to now? And they say, oh, I'm, I'm actually not going to church anymore. I don't really believe anymore. I say, oh, why don't you believe? Oh, I don't know. Just, I guess just the things of this world, like work and holiday houses. And, you know, I just wanted to have a bit of fun. And so I stopped going to church and I just wandered away from the faith. That is the Esau who looks at the world and everything in the world chucks at him this temporary pleasure, this moment of satisfaction, and he chucks away his birthright. That's the warning. Please don't be like Esau. But I finish with the positive on God's grace. The wonder of God's grace, because that is Jacob. Jacob is this walking, talking symbol of God's grace. You know that, that verse in, in Romans 9, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. It bothers me. It bothers me that you've got Esau I hated. I, I don't like that bit. But this week, what's bothered me even more is the first line, Jacob I loved. Because as I've read this story over and over again, I don't love Jacob. I hate Jacob. <laughs> Jacob is, his, to quote, cool, calculating cheat. Jacob is a scheming scoundrel. He's an ambitious opportunist. He's a lying rascal. He's a self-seeking, self-serving, self-righteous, heartless, horrible git. And yet God loves him. And yet God loves him. Nothing good about him. Nothing worthy, but yet God loves him. And it's this light bulb moment saying, Paul, that is you. That is you. You are the lying rascal, you're the self-centered, self-righteous git. We're all good at putting on the mask. We're all good at walking to church on Sunday and pretending that we're amazing. But God sees you behind closed doors, doesn't he? God sees what you do, and he sees what you think and how you treat people in your mind. So please don't be self-righteous and say, oh, how terrible Jacob is. You're supposed to say, I am Jacob. And then he's supposed to say, well, how could God love me? How could God love me? And the answer is, there's nothing worthy of that love. It's all just grace. And I love that because if it was anything but grace, then church would be full of proud, self-righteous, boastful people. But when you realize that you are Jacob... He just throws you onto your knees again to say, why me, God? Why did you love me with that lavish, inexplicable, never-failing love, totally undeserved? So nobody here is better than anybody else. Nobody here is worse than anybody else. If you're here as a believer, we're all just loved by God with his extraordinary love that you'll never really understand. <laughs> so I don't understand election. But I don't fully understand love either. <laughs> because why would God love us? Answer? Just because he does. <laughs> Let me pray. I'm going to pray 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's pray over our church. Brothers and sisters at 7 p.m., think of what you were when you were called by God.
Not many of us were wise by human standards. Not many of us were influential. Not many of us were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world, that's us, to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world, that's us, to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world, that's us, to nullify the things that are. So that no one may boast before him, it's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. So Lord God, we want to say thank you. Thank you for your inexplicable, lavish love. Thank you that you saw us in all of our messed up sin. You saw us in our manipulation, our lying, our cruelty, our conniving, our scheming. You saw us and you loved us. And you loved us enough to send your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to die for us. Lord Jesus, thank you. I pray now, Father, for those that I love who are not yet believers. And for those in this room tonight who have loved ones who are not yet believers. And we beg of you, Lord, in your good, perfect timing, would you have mercy on them? Would you show them your compassion? Would you call them to yourself? And we lead them into your just, mighty hands now. In Jesus' name we pray.